0: Father in heaven, thank you again for the time that we have to come here and to study your word. And we invite you through the, person of the third person of the Godhead to be our special guest. To walk up and down this room. Uh, that the place where we would be standing and sitting would be holy ground that would not be taken lightly. That we would recognize that we are coming into the presence of the king of the universe. And that there would be a solemnity of mind and of heart as we listen for that still small voice to speak to us through your word today and give us an experience that we are all searching for. Uh, I pray this, Lord, because you said that we can ask anything if it's according to your will, and I believe that that prayer is according to your will, uh, that you will not only hear us, uh, but that you will answer it. And so we thank you for the fulfillment of that prayer, Lord, as we now seek earnestly for the blessing you have in store. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So let's begin with a quick review uh, from this morning. So this morning we looked at a concept of the the title was The Intention of Scripture. What is the intention of Scripture? And the, the ballpark picture that I tried to illustrate from Scripture today is that God's intention of Scripture is to give you a revelation of Jesus in every story, in every passage. Yes, even those obscure Old Testament passages that we have... We're so confused when we read them. Jesus is in there too, amen? He is in there. And God doesn't just give that arbitrarily, but God gives this picture of Jesus in these passages so that through beholding Him, it would shed light on God's character, a light on the knowledge of the glory of God, which is what we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And that as it would shed light on God's character and we would understand His character more, we can then take that story and bring it into our own experience. And that was kind of the focal point is, the Bible has to come alive, amen? It has to come alive. It can't be treated like a math book or a science book in the sense of just learning information to regurgitate with the right answers. God is desperately seeking to have an experience with you. He wants that word to be living and abiding within you. To where when you speak of the stories of the Bible, you speak with conviction because it's almost like it's your own story now. When you speak of Elijah, when you speak of the disciples, uh, when you speak of any of these characters, you speak from one who has walked with them side by side because you've experienced God in the way they have. That's what God is seeking for us to have through Scripture. And this is what brings the Bible to life. And so we talked about that this morning. And so this afternoon, we're going to take a deeper look now and apply that concept um, and how we view and understand certain things. And I'm going to share some stories. I've had the experience of being an evangelist. Uh, I love preaching public evangelistic campaigns. So if I say anything that almost sounds contradictory to that, that's not true. I love evangelistic campaigns. Um, However, I've learned a lot of things through trial and error as a young evangelist. And I'll be sharing some of those stories. So our three points today are number one. How do we view prophecy with this understanding that it's Christ-centered, revealing his character as the primary focal point? How do we then view prophecy, such as particularly books of Daniel, Revelation, and you can apply that to books like Ezekiel, Isaiah, etc. Number two, uh, how do we view our fundamental beliefs? How do we view uh, the different doctrines that we believe as our core doctrines with this concept in mind? And then number three, we're going to summarize And tie everything all together. So how do we view prophecy? Prophecy, I love, now again, I love prophecy. So if it sounds like I'm speaking contrary to that, that's not true. I taught Revelation for eight years. I love Revelation. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I taught the book of Daniel. Uh, It's an amazing book. Um, However, in my experience with prophecy, and maybe you can relate to a degree with this, I found that often when we speak of prophecy, the emphasis is on events and dates and things of this nature. Would you agree with that statement? Okay, that that tends to be the primary emphasis. And in fact, if uh, you sit through an evangelistic campaign on the 2300-day prophecy, right? Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. If you sit in the evangelistic meeting, the primary focus of that presentation is the dates, right? It's the math and the dates and that the investigative judgment began in... Amen. Good job. A plus, right? A plus on pop quiz, 1844. And so that seems to be like the primary focal point. Or when we look at things like the trumpets, the seven trumpets of Revelation, and yes, we are going to take a peek at the trumpets this afternoon. Uh, When you look at things like the trumpets, um, typically what I have found is there is a little debate and discussion over the interpretation of the trumpets. If you're a revelation person who loves to study, you might have found that to be true. Would you agree with that statement? That there's kind of division over interpretation of the trumpets. Okay. No matter who I hear present on the trumpets, what's the main focal point of the trumpets as presented? Historical events or future events, depending on how they're explaining it. Uh, It's events, right? It's it's events that occur and that take place. And it's not that prophecy should be void of these things, because that's the very nature of prophecy, right? That it's saturated with events and dates and things. But should those be the main points? Should those be the main points? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, as we begin, this verse, this verse, I believe, summarizes much of what we talked about this morning. Does anyone know, pop quiz number two, uh, what Jesus' favorite subject was to discourse on? Lo- you love, yeah, I heard love, that's true. We can be a little more specific than that. Of the Say that again? Character of the Father? Character of the Father? Yes, but even more specific, more specific, she says, the paternalness of God. Ooh, is that beautiful? The paternalness of God, the the fatherliness of God. There's something about this talking about who God was that was just his favorite thing to talk about. So, as we go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, though it is a very common and almost cliche verse, I hope with that in mind, it's a very important verse. Because it says here, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, um, He who does not love does not know God, for God is what? Yeah, God is love. And so here we see this, again, summary of this morning, a benevolent, beautiful, merciful, loving God. That this is who God is. Now, if or sense that this is who God is and if the burden of every passage is to reveal God, then every prophecy should show God is? Does that make sense? It sounds simple, right? It sounds simple, but I'll be quite honest with you. I've, sit, I've sat through prophecy seminars and presentations before and sometimes you don't really leave thinking, wow, like feeling like, wow, God is love. So I used to leave thinking like, Man, that was like more numbers than my math class I got to (laughs) memorize. Or I used to leave thinking, I have no idea what that was even about. Or I used to leave thinking like, wow, so much stuff happened in history. It's amazing. It's crazy. So So many things happened in history. But I couldn't say very often, looking back on my experience as a young Christian, when I would leave prophecy meetings, that I would leave the seminar, the presentation saying, wow, God is love. And then I then became a revelation teacher and I would give lectures. And after my own lecture, I would look back on my lecture and say, I don't think my student can leave saying, wow, God is, I must have an incomplete understanding of prophecy. I must be missing a piece of the puzzle. And then I thought to myself, well, isn't prophecy supposed to be there to urge us to make a decision to follow God, right? Isn't that how we view prophecy many times? I was at a particular church as an evangelist and there was a, the pastor asked me, or he mentioned to me, he said, uh, you don't need to cover the 2300 prophecy in your presentations. And I'll, I was kind of taken aback. I was like, actually, I, I do. It's, it's an important concept. He said, oh, we don't need that another prophecy just to scare people to accept Jesus. You have plenty of prophecies that will scare people to accept Jesus. <laughs> and I remember I thought to myself, like, I kind of smirked and kind of giggled, but it's because I, and part of me realized that that was true. Does that make sense? That as an evangelist, it's really easy to get up front and to really kind of drive that home. And then I read this quote. From FH, page 159. The shortness of time is urged as an incentive for us to seek righteousness and to make Christ our friend. Pause right there. Where do we get the shortness in time from? From what? Studying prophecy, right? Notice this. This is not The great motive. It savors of what? Selfishness. Is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God be held before us to compel us through fear to right action? This ought not to be. Jesus is what? Attractive. I love that sentence right there. Jesus is attractive. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. Jesus is enough, right? Like, he's attractive enough. And I I read this uh, a while ago. Luckily, a friend was able to help me find the quote this afternoon. Um, And I remember it really shook me because as an evangelist, that hit me to my core. Because I was using prophecy to urge people to accept Jesus. And I realized that that was not the great motive. Instead, what I needed to do was present the fact that Jesus is attractive. And that alone would be enough to compel them to follow. But it didn't mean you don't present prophecy, but it meant prophecy should show that Jesus is... Ah, there it is, right? The whole God is love concept again. And then that brought me back to the realization I had an incomplete view of prophecy. Because I knew the dates and the times and all these things, and I thought many of the prophecies were simple and I understood them. But you wouldn't leave my presentation saying, wow... Jesus is attractive. So, prophecy. Prophecy is not just in Daniel and Revelation. Prophecy is all through Scripture. In fact, does anyone know which chapter we have the first prophecy given to us? Genesis three. Genesis 3. Very good. Very very good. Genesis chapter three. Uh, we know in Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. We know the, uh, the kind of the experience. If, if you don't know, again, forgive me for assuming. Uh, they don't allow me three hours when I present, so I always have, am forced to assume facts and assume things. And if you don't know Genesis 3, forgive me for that assumption. Please read Genesis 3 when you get a chance um, to understand the context. And that's okay, because there was a time when I would sit in a presentation like this, and people would say, oh, like in Genesis 3, and I would shake my head, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, if that's you, don't worry about it. It's okay. Just check me to make sure I didn't lie to you um, this evening when you read Genesis 3 for yourself. Genesis 3, you have the fall of Adam and Eve when uh, they chose to uh, disobey God and to eat of the, uh, the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And there was a consequence for that, right? Correct? Uh, there was a consequence. They found themselves to be naked, they had lost this, their, their covering. Um, compare Scripture with Scripture, their robes of light. Uh, they had lost this. And when God came walking in the garden, how did they respond to the presence of God? Yeah, they were scared, right? They were scared. They fled. They literally went to hide themselves. God calls out to them, where are you? He has an interaction with them. And then eventually, he he closed them and has to remove them from the garden of Eden. Amidst that chaotic day, I'm sure that was a very stressful day for everyone involved. Even the serpent, he lost his legs, right? I mean, everyone was stressed that day. There was no one who wasn't stressed that day. It went bad for everyone. I'm sure God was sad. Adam and Eve were sad. The serpent was sad. In this this experience when there was no one viewing positivity, God did something miraculous. God did something amazing. Uh, In Genesis chapter 3, looking at verse 15, God said this. God said this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Hmm. We know what this is. Adam knew what this was. This was a prophecy that one would come and gain the victory, right? One would come and crush the serpent. Question. Did God have to tell Adam that detail? Adam messed up. Adam had sinned. Adam was clothed. Adam needed to be removed from the garden. Shown the sacrificial system. Did God have to come and tell Adam? Adam, by the way, just so you know, I actually do have this covered. Someone will come and will crush the serpent. Did God have to tell Adam that detail? I'm going to suggest to you God did not have to give Adam that detail. And here's the thing. Because of the situation, God would have still been considered fair even if he had not given Adam that extra detail. Adam would just need to learn to trust God that it would be okay without the the description of what would even happen. I'll give you another example. In Genesis chapter 6 and 7, does anyone know what happens in in, in Genesis chapter 6 and 7? story of the flood, the worldwide flood that occurred. Genesis 6 tells us that the thoughts of men's hearts were evil continually. I can't imagine what that's even like. Um, but they had come to a point when they were evil continually. And a flood was going to be brought upon uh, the world. However, there was one man who found grace in the sight of the Lord. And his name was? Noah. Noah. And Noah was const- instructed to construct a Ark. ark. So he faithfully built the ark. And in Genesis chapter 7, the time has come now to enter into the ark. And I want you to notice the details, because God does something fascinating. And I missed it. I must have read the Bible a dozen times, and I never caught this detail. So maybe you have. Maybe I just missed it. But to me, this was amazing. Genesis chapter 7. Again, we're dealing with prophecy. How to view prophecy. Because these are, Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy. I don't think God had to give that detail, but he chose to give that detail. Genesis 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven of each clean animal, a male and his female, two of each animals that are unclean, a male and his female. It goes on to say in verse 3, Also seven of each birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. Now let's pause right there. So, Noah's called to come onto the boat. His family's told to come onto the boat. The animals are all on the boat. And God closes the door to the boat. And what happens immediately after God closed that door? Does anyone know? Nothing. How long did nothing happen for? Does anyone know? Seven days. Seven 24 hour periods of sitting on a boat full of animals. After you have just preached for 120 years, it's going to rain when you get in the boat. Would that be a tough seven days for you in the boat? Could you imagine the voices outside? Noah, Noah, is it raining yet? Can you see from the elevation that you're at up there in the boat? I mean, imagine being mocked and ridiculed. Imagine if you were the child of Noah. Hey, Dad, it's, it's going to rain, right? Like, God did tell you it's going to rain, right? Like, you got that detail right, right? Yes, son, I got that detail right. Just trust me. Trust God. When I first read that story, I thought to myself, I don't think I could have survived seven days. I can't imagine. After, like, two or three days, I probably would open the door and be like, Dude, honestly, guys, I must have misread my Bible or something. Like, I'm just, I'm off. I'm off. I couldn't fathom how Noah did it. And then one day I was reading Genesis chapter 7, and I actually realized how he did it. And I never noticed this detail. Notice verse 4 very carefully. God is speaking here. God said, for after seven more days, I will cause it to rain. God told them there was going to be a delay. I never noticed that before. I knew there was a delay, but I didn't know that God actually told Noah, hey Noah, get on the boat, get your family on the boat, all the animals are going to be on the boat, and by the way, after you're all on the boat, after seven more days, then it will rain. There will be a delay. Maybe you saw that before? I never saw that before. And I thought to myself one day when I was sitting there in my room thinking, did God have to tell him that detail? Would he have been expected to be faithful without that detail? Yeah, because if God says it, we are called to take God at his his word. So if God says it, you're to take God at his word. So then why in the world did God say, Noah, in my own words, by the way, there will be a seven-day delay, brace yourself. But after that, it will rain. Is that a prophecy? That's a prophecy. Why did God give prophecy? These are two of the first prophecies given in Scripture, plainly. There's one with names in Genesis 5, but that's different. Um, and when I look at them, they're details that did not need to be given. And here's why I believe they were given. Here's the punchline. How do you prophecy? God gives prophecy because God is love. He gives you the extra details almost because he can't help himself. He has to give you the best possible advantage to make it through whatever's coming. That he gives you almost every. I mean, when I looked at that story, I was almost like, it almost lessened the impact of the seven-day delay in my mind. Because I'm like, wait, God, God you told him? <laughs> like, I almost was like, you're testing his faith. Like, oh no, a good look. I hope you hope you don't open the door during those seven days. No, God didn't do that. God said, hey, please, look, I really want you to succeed. I really want you to stay faithful. There will be a delay. Just hold on. And I I began to view prophecy this way. And I looked from Genesis all the way through Revelation at many prophecies. I challenge you to do this. God gives prophecies. He gives details, especially in prophecies, that are not necessary. They're not required in order for the actual thing to be fulfilled. However, He gives these abundant details because God is love. He gives them because He wants to give you the best possible chance of making it through whatever the prophecy is pointing to. Does that make sense? And as I looked at this, it got me excited it got me excited about Daniel and Revelation. I was like, what other things did I miss? What other details did I miss that like he was saying, Anthony, by the way, I'm telling you this, not because you really have to know this, but this is going to make it so much easier for you. It changed how I viewed the, the, almost God's motive in prophecy. His motive in prophecy. It wasn't just to show that he really exists. That's true. That's a part of it. But it's almost like he can't help himself. He just has to give you the details because of who he is. Okay, let's look at some of Revelation's prophecies. Um, With this concept, the unfolding of the plan of salvation, please turn with your Bibles with me to uh, uh, Revelation chapter... Let's go to verse 8. Revelation chapter 8. This one will be with your Bibles. It's not going to be on the screen. I ain't going to lie. I was a little timid to make a PowerPoint this afternoon. Um, so I did half and half just in case (laughs) I was more mentally prepared. Uh, for those that weren't here this morning, I was having some technical difficulties. So in Revelation chapter eight, um, and I want us to begin with verse seven and we're looking at the seven trumpets. We're looking at the seven trumpets here. And I just want us to get an idea of the trumpets. If you've, who's here, who here has never studied the seven trumpets of Revelation before? Has anyone here never studied? It's okay if you haven't. Wonderful. Pray, praise God. I'm glad you're here. Don't worry. This is not going to go over your head. Don't worry. Uh, we're going to keep this very simple on the seven trumpets. I'm just going to try to give you a concept. Okay, starting in verse 7, the Bible says, The first angel sounded, and hail and, hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Don't worry, Not interpretation, I'm not asking you to interpret, I'm not going to try to start a debate or division in this room right now over the seven trumpets, but just looking at that trumpet, good news or bad news? Okay, bad, we all can see that, right? Fire and hail falling to the earth, destroying a third of the grass, doesn't sound like a day in the park that you want to be experiencing. Okay, we all can agree with that. And this comes as a result of the sounding of a what? A trumpet. Okay, let's look at the next one. Verse 8. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Good news or bad news? Okay, sounds, sounds like bad news, right? Sounds like bad news again. A third of the ships were destroyed. Continuing, verse 10. It says here the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven. Burning like a torch, it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the storm is, uh, star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Even if you don't know what Wormwood is, good news or bad news? Bad news comes from the sound of a what again? From a trumpet. Let's look at one more. Uh, verse twelve. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third day did not shine, and likewise the nights. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, "Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth." Because the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels are about to sound. Good news or bad news? It's almost like extra bad news, isn't it? It's like all this stuff happens in the fourth trumpet and then the angel goes by. It's like, oh, what's the angel got to say? Mercy, 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 right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. In other words, it's like bad news, bad news, bad news. Because there are still three more trumpets that are about to sound. And they actually intensify with great more detail. When you look at these trumpets, for whoever is experiencing them, good and bad is relative. I'm not saying that it's actually good or bad per se, it's just relative terms based on the people who's being the recipient of the trumpet, right? Um, It appears that they're bad, right? It appears that these are uh, devastations and destructions that are taking place. And many people will debate the events. Is this the first trumpet beginning with the destruction of Jerusalem? Are the first four trumpets the divisions of Rome that take place? Pagan Rome before impur- or papal Rome comes about? What are they? In fact, there are seven primary historical views on this passage. There's a symposium on the trumpets. And there are seven primary, like main views, uh, active views on this passage alone. Seven, that's a lot, right? I remember I was talking with an individual who vehemently disagreed with my interpretation of the trumpets, which is fine. I don't mind if any of you disagree with me, by the way. Um, and we, we were kind of going at it in a very Christ-like, fun way um, over the trumpets, going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then we came to a point when I decided to share something different. And I point out the fact that we, we know it's bad news. We know it's judgments. But why are the trumpets even occurring? Why are these... Devastations even taking place. Back up a few more verses in the beginning of the chapter and notice this. Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. Pause right there. The golden censer in the altar is pointing to what? Sanctuary. And who would be holding a golden censer? Yeah, it would be a priest or a high priest. It's particularly the golden sense. We're not getting into the details of that. But yeah, you would see here that there's a priestly ministration taking place. It goes on to say, he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. Again, we don't have to interpret symbols and things like that. Just big picture. You have an individual offering incense with the prayers of the saints, right? And where is he located when he's offering this incense? At the... At the altar. We're not really interpreting. We're just reading what it says, right? Okay, this is the introductory scene to the seven trumpets. This is what's happening in heaven that causes the seven trumpets to sound, okay? But what are these prayers? Just back up a little bit more. Uh, Chapter... Six. You're gonna go back to chapter 6 of Revelation, and we're going to look at verse 5, uh, 9. Excuse me, verse 9. Now remember, location is key. Where is he located? At the angels located at the, the altar. At the altar, the prayers of the saints were ascended, and the result of those prayers was imminent destruction that ended up falling. Notice this. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the what? The altar, the souls of those who had been what? Slain for the word of God and for the testament which they held. Notice this. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Notice the question. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you do what? Judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell where? On the earth. earth. And this is interesting, because when you look at the first trumpet, the fire mingled with hail fell uh, and was thrown, and it specifically details it, to the earth. What am I indicating here? I used to debate so much over the trumpets, the dates, the events. Was it the divisions of Rome? the germanic uh tribes was it the jerusalem and other events was it a spiritual concept we used to get in all kinds of debates over this and we would always spin in circles and usually if you believe one way at the end of the debate you still believe the same way only more strongly right because you just spent an hour debating it (laughs) that's nature of debating um it's kind of sad But one day I took a step back, because I realized I had an incomplete view, and I asked myself the question, but why are the trumpets taking place? Oh, it's at the altar. Well, what's happening at the altar? It's the prayers of the saints. Well, where do we see the the saints have prayers at an altar? It's in Revelation chapter 6. Well, why are they there? Because they were slain. What are they asking for? God to do what? To judge and avenge them. And I thought, that makes sense. In the trumpets, God is judging and avenging, Right? Because he's answering the prayers of the saints, those who had been slain. So when I say, are the trumpets good or bad? Well, naturally, when you read it, we think it's what? But I'm going to suggest to you, it's actually good. It's a picture of God defending and avenging his bride. Is that a beautiful picture? And I remember I was in a debate with this particular individual, and I remember I shared this point, and he just stopped in his tracks. He said, now that I can agree with. And I said, and I think that's the most important point of the seven trumpets, is it, it portrays the ministration of our high priest who is ministering on our behalf, even to the point where he will defend his bride. And then when I read the trumpets and about the destruction, it's no longer a story of destruction. It's a story of someone who loves someone and who's stepping in to defend them. And it completely changes the picture of what you see about God. Does that make sense or did I lose you on that one? Make sense? Amen, amen. Um, okay, I'm going to skip the rest of the book, of Revelation. I was going to do like four prophecies with you, but I think that was enough. <laughs> that, that didn't go as quick or smooth as I anticipated. So forgive me for that. Try that on prophecies in Revelation. Um, in fact, the trumpets are repeated, uh, you, many terminology repeated in the plagues. I don't know if you've ever compared the trumpets and the plagues, they're actually very similar. Um, I want you to, with that concept, look at the plagues and ask God the question, what do you see about His character? How do you see God, Christ, revealed in the plagues? And remember, there is both goodness and severity. We see that in the trumpets. God's goodness is He's defending His people. He's stepping in and answering the prayers of those people. Even though they're dead, He still has remembered their prayers. Isn't that beautiful? It's like even though they've died, God's like, actually, I stored that in a bottle. I know their prayers, and they will be answered. It's precious, but it's also severity for those who have persecuted God's people that a God will come in and will bring judgments to defend his people. So in that prophecy, you see both goodness and severity of God's character, and that should change how you present the trumpets, how you view the trumpets, and it should give you a spiritual benefit and blessing instead of just reading a bunch of history books about dates and events. Okay, we're going to skip some things here. What about our fundamental beliefs? Okay will not go as long as it just did. Um, gonna, yeah, we'll do that one. How does this affect our fundamental beliefs? I believe that when we study the Bible in the way that was described this morning, and our, especially our fundamental beliefs, in the same way we just looked at that prophecy and what we looked at this morning, it drastically changes how you present that to someone else. For instance, state of the dead. I want to address that. Uh, and again, if someone here is for the first time, we're so glad you're here. And if this is brand new to you, come ask me for a Bible study after this presentation. Um, but we're going to be addressing the issue of what happens when you, when you die. And so the Bible says here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5, For the living know that they will die. Everyone knows that. But the dead know nothing. And so we know from the Bible that death is simply a sleep. It's when an individual goes to sleep and is awaiting the day of resurrection when Christ will wake them up. So, when you give a Bible study, a typical Bible study guide, or a typical Bible study, would, it would teach that. It would say that, right? That's what it would do. It would show you, uh, here's what happens when you die. Here's about five verses that kind of describe that. Um, here's five verses that you read that seem to say otherwise. Here's why that's an incorrect view, but here's why those verses actually go in harmony with uh, what we just taught you. And so do you believe now and accept that dead people are dead and asleep? That's a typical Bible study. You're a Bible worker. That's a typical, that's a typical Bible study. It's what you do. And then people at the end nod their head and either say yes or uh, they shake their head vehemently and say, no way, Jose, because that's one of the biggest testing truths. Uh, so what happens when you die. And one day I was preaching an evangelistic meeting, actually here in Southern California, I won't say the city, and I had three Baptist ministers who were attending my meetings. It was amazing. It was fun. It was great. We we would have great uh two of them were uh like senior pastors, kind of the main pastors, and one of them was the youth uh, pastor. And the youth pastor he came because we had about eight or so of their young adults coming to the meetings, and so he felt that it was his obligation to be there to you know protect his sheep. And I told him, I was like, hey, look. Bro, I was like, if I had like eight of my kids going to some random place I've never been to before, I would probably go with them too. I told them, mad respect for sacrificing your schedule. We had a good time. Anyways, I covered State of the Dead. And I was like, man, this is going to be it. This is going to be fireballs after this presentation. And I went to speak with him afterwards. And I said, what did you think of the presentation? He said, that was sound. He said, that was sound. I wouldn't disagree with you on that. He's like, like every night, it seemed biblical. And then I was like, oh, okay. He said, but I have a question for you. And I was not ready for this question. He said, why did you present that? And I said, huh? I've had people ask me like, like whether it's right or wrong type questions, but I never had anyone just ask me, why did you just preach that sermon? He said, you preach wonderful sermons on the existence of God, the validity of scripture, on the plan of salvation, on on things that are practical to the day-to-day life. Why did you even present that? He's like, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying, do you take joy in robbing people of the comfort they have that their grandma's in heaven? And it really took me back because he wasn't even disagreeing with me. He's, it's like someone saying, you're right, but you're mean. And I was like, I don't know how to respond to that. I was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> like, because it's true. And he said, yeah, but there are many things that are true. And Jesus says, you cannot bear them now. So why would you present that from... He said, like, isn't there something more applicable and necessary to present from the pulpit than telling people that dead people are just asleep? Like, what did that do tonight? He said, think about that. Honestly, like, I went home and I had to pray and think. Does that make sense where I'm coming from? Because it made me evaluate why... Di- I mean, okay, I know why I preached it because it's truth. <laughs> and it's important truth. And these people are going to make a decision to accept Jesus and eventually to join the Seventh Adventist Church. They need to know that truth. But I really had to take a step back and say... I mean, why? Yeah, they're just sleeping. Like, what was the point? Like, why did I do that? Like, what was the necessity? And then I started thinking of my other sermons. So, state of the dead. I ended up deciding to look at it through the lenses of what we've been talking about as I was going through my fundamental beliefs. I felt like it was one of the more challenging ones. And I came across this verse, and I really chewed on it. Revelation chapter 16, verse 14, describing the end of time. It says, For they are the spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth, and of the whole world, to gather men to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And notice this, it calls them the spirits of what? The spirits of demons. And this is fascinating, because we know in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14, it says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an, an angel of light. Can Satan disguise himself as an angel of light? Yes, he can. And I was really chewing on this one day. Why am I presenting this, this concept? What is the point? And I realized why God gave us this truth? Because God is love. Because God knew that that deception would be so potent and so powerful, the reality is, no one could withstand that on their own. You cannot. In fact, when you read the book Great Controversy, there's three chapters dedicated to this one subject in that book. And in that book, there are many warnings given. And guess who the warnings are written to? The people who actually know the truth, not to the people who don't know. Because it's so powerful, even knowing it does not inoculate you from falling into it. Check out those chapters. Look at it carefully. It was written for you, not for the general world. That was written to tell you just because you know better does not mean you will not be deceived. And I thought to myself, imagine a loved one appearing right in front of me who sounds and looks and smells and all these things, and they tell you something. Wouldn't you believe them? I'll tell you what, I would. In a heartbeat. But God loved you so much, and he knew Satan was going to be so deceptive, he littered this truth from Genesis to Revelation, actually. It's really all over Scripture, this concept of what happens when you die. And I believe he did this so forcefully because he loved you so much. He loved you so much. And when I give a Bible study, this is exactly how I tell the people when I present it. God, as we're going through this, I'm like, look. And I build up the fact that Satan, he practiced deception and God loves you. He wants to preserve you. Do you want to be preserved? And they're like, yes. And we build up this concept of, look, it's a story of God's love of shielding and protecting you from Satan's end time delusions. And then we get to the punchline eventually. But it's not like the whole main point. It's, just like, it's almost like the whole main point is there is a deceptive individual out there who is trying to shroud you and trying to get you to, to leave God. And guess at, at the very end is this is one way in which he does it. There are many ways, but this is one way that is a potent way in which he does it. In changing this approach, in changing my approach to the state of the dead, as an evangelist, I used to preach on state of the dead. And after that presentation, we lose at least half of the attendees. That's very common. That's very common. Um, you don't lose any, I mean, I don't even lose that many people when I cover Antichrist. In fact, sometimes I gain people when I cover Antichrist. It's kind of an interesting situation. But this particular subject is one where many people will stop coming because it's such a hard truth to accept. When, when a change in the approach is, has been made over the years to this approach, um, that number of 50% has dropped down to as little as 5%. And even the sequence of meetings, we actually do Hellfire before State of the Dead, all about God's love. It's called the fire of His love. So we look at Hellfire through the picture of God's love. And it's a beautiful concept when you understand and study these fundamentals through the, through the fact that this is a revelation of God loves you. It's almost like you would think a, a presentation on Hellfire would make you scared. People leave loving God so much more after that presentation. And it, then you cover state of the dead, and when you cover it, it's this, this continuation of this fire of his love into his desire to protect you and to shoot you from the deception of being on the receiving end of that fire. And when you come to that punchline, people are like, it makes sense. I see it. Praise God. He loves me that much. It changes everything when you view fundamentals as, look, this is who God is. This is the God of love, the benevolent God who's giving this for you, to preserve you, to save you, versus saying, yeah, you've believed this for 30, 40, 50 years, you're wrong, this is what's right. And as an evangelist, I was on the the latter end of that way of presenting, and I was always surprised when people stopped coming. And when I look back on it, doesn't it make sense why people would stop coming? It makes so much sense. Here's what I would challenge you to do. Homework. Homework is the best way to apply things you learn. Grab a piece of paper and write out the plan of salvation in a paragraph. Write out the whole plan of salvation as you best understand the plan of salvation. Once you write out the plan of salvation in a paragraph, I want you to list all your fundamental beliefs that you believe. And then I want you to ask yourself a question. How does that belief fit into that paragraph? How does that belief show that paragraph? If it doesn't, we have an incomplete understanding of the plan of salvation, the paragraph, or a misunderstanding of the fundamental belief. That's an assignment someone gave me nine years ago. It changed my experience. So I would challenge you to do that for yourself. Okay. I'm going to have to skip some of these things. That would have been really fun, actually. Um, oh, that's precious. I think that was, that was an easy one, I think, for us to, to see how to present the relational aspect of God and things of that nature. Um, is this making sense, though? And I know it almost sounds like... I, I was sharing this with an individual one time, and he says, it almost sounds like you're dumbing down the Bible. Like you're making this too easy. Like... Everything is God is love, and this is who God is. And I smiled, I said, well, I think God has to make it so easy because humans are so good at overcomplicating things. That God had to make the gospel so easy. Is it really that easy to know God? It is. It really is. And He's given us everything that we need. You have your Bibles. Amen? We are privileged to live in a time period when we can freely have our Bibles. We are blessed. Because there was a time period we would have not been allowed to live if we owned these Bibles. We have our Bibles. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit, one of the greatest gifts God has given us. We have the sacrifice of Jesus made on our behalf, who is a priest now interceding on our behalf. Like Literally, all of heaven is in your corner right now, tonight. All of heaven is in your corner and on your side. And Jesus comes to you and stands at the door of your heart every single day, and He knocks. He knocks at the door of your heart and says, will you open unto me? And sometimes we look at him and say, well, that's too shallow. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for deep apologetics. That's too shallow. That's not what I'm looking for. I really want to nail down these dates. And again, apologetics are great. Dates are great. Prophecy is great. I love it all. You should study that. But if we never open the door wide to Jesus himself and say, God, how does this Show me you. And how does this revelation of you come now and be a part of me? As Paul says, you can speak with the tongues of angels and of men, but if you have not love, it profits you nothing. You can know all mysteries, right? You can know all knowledge. You can know all prophecies. But if you have not love, it profits you. I would rather have God's love abiding in my heart and have a daily revelation of the paternalness of God, of the justice of God, there's his severity, it's there, of who God is, who I am, and to spend a short period of time meditating, mourning, and claiming his pardoning love. Right? We talked about that quote this morning. I would rather do that every day than to be the greatest apologist this world has ever seen. Mm -hmm. And have not that love of God abiding in the heart. I'm not saying you can't have both. Amen. I hope that's clear. I have to keep reemphasizing that because someone's going to leave and say, man, he said you don't need to study prophecy. I did not say that. Prophecy is amazing. Study it, please. Um, but do not divorce your doctrines from Jesus. We are too good at that. Amen. And I think it happens because we're a very academia-motivated church, to be quite honest. We're a very intellectual church. Many people who joined the church joined because they were reached intellectually. I like to tell people I was an atheist who intellectually assented to Christianity, but I didn't fall in love with Jesus for another couple years. I didn't. It wasn't until I grabbed a book called The Desire of Ages. And I read this book, and it literally broke my heart. I'm like, whoa, this is, I never saw the story that way. Every teaching of Jesus, in my mind, was pictures of right and wrong. Like, yes, this vindicates that doctrine, this vindicates, aha, that that shows your doctrine's wrong. Do you see that, that parable? Yeah, you're wrong. See that? It's right there. And one day I read it through the lens of this is God and I want to be a part of you. How do you want to have that experience? Amen? It cannot happen if you do not open your Bibles though. So the first concept is first first decision to make in your own hearts. I don't make big appeals or raise hands or anything. It's between you, God, and your hearts right now. Will you commit every day? Because if you're in a relationship, you don't tell your wife hey, I'm taking the weekend off. Right? I mean, you should have. hope Hopefully not. See some smiles out there. I hope that's not what you do. When you are in a relationship, it's consistent. Will you commit to God every day I will open my Bible? Not for any specific time. Don't even set a time. I'm just going to open my Bible. If it's five minutes, praise God. Every relationship starts with an awkward high anyways, right? And it grows. So number one, will you commit every day to open the Bible? Because without that, nothing can happen. Number two, Will you decide in your heart to say, when I open my Bible and study, I will do my best to put aside my disposition only to look for right and wrong answers and learn to look for a relationship with the person. I'm looking to get to know God. I want to know who he is. And I want to bring that, I want this story to be my story. In a positive sense. I want this story my experience. Will you choose to study that way? And number three, when you share the Bible with someone else, will you commit to try to do your best? And yes, you will trial and error. Trust me, I've done this a hundred times where I've like, okay, I'm going to try to show this as God is love. And I like say something about a fundamental, trying to illustrate God's love through it. And people look at me like, what? And I'm like, forget I said that. Back up. We'll try that again. That's okay. It's be- and it's kind of sad. It's hard because it's new for us and it shouldn't be new, but it is new and that's okay. It is what it is but will you commit to deciding your heart that when you do share the Bible, that you would do it through this lens, that everything will point to who God is and how He can be a part of their life, whether prophecy, whether doctrine, parable, whatever it is. Those are my appeals to you, to chew on, to think on, to pray on, and to ask God to give you strength to do. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for the chance to study your word uh i know we could probably talk for hours on your precious word and how to study it look at it look at many more examples of scripture Uh, time would fail us lord but honestly your holy spirit is the best teacher and so i pray that his presence would go with us as we leave this place uh that something that was shared and said um, that you would take it and really drive it home to our hearts and our minds and that you would give us an experience with you um It breaks my heart. It makes me sad when I hear about people having dry walks with you. And it's so hard for me to comprehend how we can have a dry walk with you when you're so attractive, when you're so beautiful, when you're so precious, when every story is an experience waiting to be lived out in my own life. So I pray that you would help us all, including myself, to daily have these types of experiences and revelations, that daily we would love you more, daily we would trust you more, Daily, we would be comforted by you more and in turn, be the most effective in comforting others and preparing a people for the second coming of your son. Help us to this end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org